Hmm. What's this? Hello, Eugene. Huh. Yeah. I guess that's one of the listeners. Cool. Hmm. I wonder who that could be. Er, well, um, I'm here. Well, what's this then? Hmm. Oh, Empress. I didn't expect to see you here. What, what are we doing? Hey, well, it's you know, Halloween. It's it's an Earth holiday. You'll, you'll get used to it. Oh, I, I gotcha. Yes, I suppose uh, introductions are in order. We are being recorded. Oh, 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 I, I, I'm, I'm not even dressed for that. You don't have to... It's audio, what do you... Never mind. Look, okay, introduction. Introduce yourself to the people who are listening in on our conversation right now. Let, 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 me, let me start. I am Eliza Nisiska. Uh, I guess you could still call me an empress. I think I'm technically a queen now. The empire's a little bit dissolved at the moment, but uh, never, never mind. It, it's an honorary title. It, doesn't matter. Uh, yes, people have met me before. I am here every few Halloween and or April Fool's Days to do... Uh, who even knows? Well, it seems like it's most of the stories. Yes, yes, I guess it is. Um, that, that, you were invited here for that too, right? I yep, uh... Oh, let me introduce myself. I am, uh, Captain <laughs> But you can call me, uh, Captain Wiggles. Ah, yes. Oh, yes, we did pass meet briefly, didn't we? I, yeah, well, we was on separate ships, but we was, uh, fighting that dark god, uh, together, like. Uh, yes, yes, that was, that was a while ago. Hmm. Man. It sure would be weird talking about this around people who haven't been part of that uh, in-person campaign that was not recorded. Aye, well, uh, they lost then. Yes, uh, I, I don't know if it's even interesting to get into detail about. Aye, well, uh, so, okay, so something about stories then? Yes, 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 there's uh, some on a paper here. Hey, I don't know. Um, no, just give me a second. I'll fight and figure out which one. Right, okay, well, here's... Hmm. I mean, you're a piratey type person. I... Uh, that, that I am. Yes, uh, well, this one's called the Hook-Handed Killer. That seems like more of your kind of thing. I... Well, that's a bit of a stereotype there. I don't have hook hands. I... I do have a peg leg, but, you know, that's a long story. Yeah, yes, 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 I don't need to hear it. Here, take take this. You you read it. I well, uh, okay. So, so he says people is, is listening to this. Hey, well, uh, there's at least one. There's a paper here. It says, hi, Eugene. Oh, uh, hi, Eugene. Yes, yeah, that's one of the people who are listening. I guess, I don't know, there's a bunch of others. Um, just, just, just read the damn story. We got a, a few of these to get through. Oi, well, uh, here it goes. Okay, um, been a while since I read anything in, uh, basic. Let's see, uh, the hook-handed killer. Last summer, 
A girl who lives near here was getting ready to go out for the evening when she heard a strange report on the radio. The reporter said that a maniac mass murderer had escaped from a nearby prison. Watch out, they said, for a man with a hook for a hand. He was known to be crazy and dangerous, and the police asked everyone's help in reporting anything out of the ordinary. The girl thought it was strange, but wasn't too worried. She was too excited about the evening ahead. Her boyfriend was coming to get her so that they could go out to a movie. Oi. A few minutes later, he pulled up in his car, and she bounded out the front door to meet him to start their evening of fun. Ho ho ho. On the way to the movie theater, as they drove down the dark, twisting road, they heard a thump on the passenger side of the car, and then a rattle near the front tire. The girl and her boyfriend were startled. I don't think that I hit anything, he said. I wonder what the noise could have been. The boyfriend was worried that something was wrong with the car. He wanted to pull over to check things out. But the girl was worried that they were going to be late for the movie. She tried to talk him out of stopping. They started to argue as he parked on the side of the road. She begged him just to keep driving. As they sat there, him explaining that he'd only be a minute, they heard another thump on the side of the car. That's strange, the boyfriend said. We're not even moving. The girl began to feel nervous. She asked again if they could just go to the movie, now as much because she was scared of the strange noises on the dark, deserted road as anything else. Her boyfriend again said he'd be just a minute, and just as he started to get out of the car, they heard another thump and a long screeching sound like metal scraping on metal. The girl and her boyfriend looked at each other, and without another word, he put the car in drive and hit the gas. They made the rest of the drive to the movie theater in record time, sitting silently, waiting. When they got to the theater, the girl had started to feel a bit foolish for getting spooked over some silly noises. I'm so sorry, she said to her boyfriend. I don't know what I was so upset about. He forgave her, and they got out of the car, laughing at their silly fight, until the girl closed her car door. One look, and she was frozen in fear, terrified as she saw the long scrape on the passenger side of the car, leading to a metal hook hand still lodged in the handle on the car door. The girl ran straight inside and called the police, but after weeks of combing the woods, they never found the hook-handed killer. They say he still wanders around these parts, and people have even seen a man with a hook hand stalking through the woods late at night. Oi, thank you. Yes, hmm, yeah. It kind of makes you wonder how many hook hands that guy must have if he still had a hook for a hand after leaving his hook hand stuck in a car door of some stupid kids. Oi, well... I don't know, I didn't write it. Yes, Earth people care about such strange things. I mean, in our world, you know, it would probably be, I don't know, a, a rust monster, a, mim a mimic. I mean, you know, fuck, you're in a car. You, how do you know it's a car? 
How do you know you're not inside of a bimic? You've just walked right into its stomach and it's about to swallow you. That's the kind of shit we have to worry about. Oi, yeah. No, it's, uh, seems more petty. Oh, God, I got a hook for her hand. What's that even gonna do? 1d4 a damage? Yeah, it, it, level up. Come on, Jesus. Yeah, well, I guess it's my turn to read a story. Okay, let me just look around. Hmm. Oh, oh, this one looks neat. Alright, so this one is called a giant red mouth. Timmy was out for a walk one day when he got lost. He started to backtrack to try to find his way home when suddenly it began to rain. The rain came pouring down, bucketfuls of water, and Timmy was quickly getting soaked. He started to run, still not quite knowing where to go. He came across a house that was clearly deserted. All the windows were empty, no lights were on. He ran up to the house to see if he could get shelter from the cold, driving rain. There was nowhere near the house to shelter him from the rain. No eaves, no porch roof. The only way to stay dry would be to get inside. And as he could tell no one lived there, he didn't think anyone would mind much. He tried at the door, and it was unlocked. Timmy was happy to be inside. He sat near a window, trying to dry off a bit, when he heard a voice behind him. Do you know what I do with my giant red mouth and my long purple fingers? Timmy whipped around and saw a huge, awful monster, with horns on top of its head, purple fur, beady little eyes, long fingers, and crooked fingernails, and a giant red mouth filled with pointy teeth. Terrified, Timmy turned to run down the hallway. The monster ran after him, his giant feet crashing along the floor behind him. Timmy made it to a doorway, ran through, and shut the door behind him. From the other side of the door, Timmy heard the monster getting louder. Do you know what I do with my giant red mouth and my long purple fingers? The monster was too close, so Timmy ran out the other side of the room and into a bathroom. He shut the door behind him, just as the monster caught up with him. The monster was even louder now. Do you know what I do with my giant red mouth and my long purple fingers? Jimmy had no place to hide except the bathroom closet. He crawled inside and closed the door behind him as the monster burst into the bathroom. The monster was just outside the door, and Timmy had nowhere else to run. He made himself as small as he possibly could and held his breath. For a moment it was quiet, and then the monster tore the closet door open. Timmy was trapped. The monster's breath was on his face as it asked again, Do you know what I do 
with my giant red mouth and my long purple fingers. Timmy could barely squeak out an answer. No, he said. Then I'll show you, said the monster. Oh, I get it now. It was a joke story, right? Uh, yes, apparently, yes. Oh, well, <laughs> very funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always disappointing when they turn out to be a joke, isn't it? I don't know. I mean, it seemed fine to me. I mean, frankly, if a big purple fuzzy guy showed up, I'd probably invite him to play cards or toss the cannonball around. Yeah, you know, once again, Earth people, they're just scared of the stupidest things. Yep, uh, well, you got another one? Uh, yes, yes, uh, let me see here. Oh, this this one, uh, Secret Treasure of Donovan Road. Yes, I, I suppose. <laughs> Look, I, lady, there, there is more to me than just pirating. Well, yes, but, uh, you know, you have the perfect voice for it. Oi, well, thank you. I guess, uh, guess I'll uh, be reading this one then now, shall I? Yes, 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 uh... Right, okay, uh, let's see here. This is uh, the secret treasure of Donovan Road. Mary used to spend some hours with her grandmother in an old house by the sea. Oh, how I loves the sea. Well, I mean, that's not a surprise. I, I mean, uh, to be honest, I prefer space to the sea, but it's uh, not really much of an option these days, so the sea is about the, uh, most free place you can be in this, uh, this landlocked world of yours. Yeah, I'll take your word for it. I've never been all that fond of saving myself. Hey, well, uh, anyway, sorry. Let's see, where, yeah, yeah, uh, by the sea. They used to pass the time in the evenings telling stories. Mary's favorite story was a story about secret treasure hidden in a house nearby. Less than a mile away, her grandmother would tell her. There are riches beyond your imagination, but also danger. That's why the riches are still there. Over many nights, Mary's grandmother shared with her the legend of the secret treasure on Donovan Road. Donovan Road was a dirt road nearby, and it led only to a single house. In that house, there once lived Mr. Donovan, who made his living through robbing others. The neighbors said that he had stolen from ships and trains and museums, and that he kept a trunk of the greatest treasures in his house. One night, Mary's grandmother said, a man came to take back what was his. Mr. Donovan had stolen a family heirloom, a ring that had belonged to the man's mother. This man stormed the house demanding its return and fought with Mr. Donovan. Both men died, and they say that both spirits still haunt the trunk where the treasures are kept, fighting for all time over the precious ring. Grandmother said that many had tried to get to the treasures on Donovan Road, but none had ever succeeded. Mary was thrilled by the story. She decided she wanted to see the house for herself. So the next day, she packed a flashlight and put on her jacket and headed out for Donovan Road. She walked down the long, dark road alone. Swish, swish, swish was the sound of her feet, rustling through the leaves. At the end of the dark road was a narrow path. Here it got even darker, 
and the path was so overgrown her flashlight hardly worked. Still, Mary was determined to see the house. Rustle, rustle, rustle was the sound of the branches around her as she fought her way into the gloom. At the end of the path, there was a clearing, and there she found the haunted house her grandmother had told her about. It was dark, and Mary set forth to look around. Crunch, crunch, crunch was the sound of her shoes on the gravel as she walked up to the porch. The door on the house was massive and heavy. It took all her strength to open it. It was pitch black inside. Mary's flashlight swept over the old furniture, covered in sheets. Heh, this place is probably not even haunted, Mary thought. Feeling brave, she walked in. Creak, creak, creak was the sound of the floor as she crossed the front room. Just then, her flashlight gave out. She was in the house, in the dark. She could only see the shapes of things around her. She started to get scared, but she wasn't giving up. She saw a hallway ahead of her and started down it. Shuffle, shuffle, shuffle was the sound of her tentative steps across the floor in the darkness. Mary could see a bit of light ahead of her. It was a room, but Mary didn't know where the light could be coming from. Was it the ghosts? She was strangely curious and decided to go see. Tap, tap, tap was the sound of her tiptoeing down the hall to get a closer look. The light was coming from a trunk. This must be the trunk that her grandmother had told her about. The trunk was glowing gold. Mary was mesmerized. Then she heard it, the sound of the spirits. Ooh, oh, ooh, is the sound of the ghosts that battled over that treasure. Mary felt chills go up her spine. She was so close. Perhaps the sounds were just a trick. She would just take a quick look inside. She had to know if the story was true. The key was in the lock for the trunk. All she had to do was open it. Click, click was the sound of the key turning in the lock. Mary started to open the trunk, but there weren't any jewels in there at all. Oh no, do you know what she found? Marshmallows and wait, what, what? Huh? Let me see that. Mar marshmallows. Seriously. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. It's, okay, so you, you see, see this thing at, at the top of this, uh, this page. It says it's, um, a campfire story. Well, oi, I mean, that's a good place for telling stories, I suppose. Well, yes, but I guess Earth people like to have these marshmallow things. Are uh, they kind of like good berries? I, I, I have no frame of reference for this thing. Yeah, well, whatever the fuck a marshmallow is, apparently you're supposed to have them on hand when you go to read the story. That way you can throw marshmallows at people's faces and it, it scares them because, you know, you're, you're throwing food at them. Oh, oh, I get you now, I get you. Huh, so it's sort of an interactive story then. 
Well, yes, I suppose I'm, I'm seeing a trend here between the uh, thing we, I don't know, make a weird tongue noise and, the, and now it's marshmallows. Um, should, should we try it? Let me see if there's a different book around here. Ah, here, here we go. Okay. Yeah, it looks like the, that first, the hook hand thingamabob thing. Uh, that, that story came from this. Uh, so let's uh, try some of these. Right, um, I'll, I'll go next, I guess. Uh, the, the gift of the doll. Hmm. All right. On Madeline's birthday, she received dozens of presents from family and friends. Video games and books, paints and paintbrushes, new clothes. The strangest gift she received, however, came in the mail. That morning... A package arrived at Madeline's house with her name on it. It's from your great-aunt Carolyn, her mom said. It was a strange little trunk that had stickers on it that looked like it had traveled the world. When Madeline opened the trunk, a moth flew out and a billow of dust choked her. After the dust cleared, she saw her gift a beautiful porcelain doll. The doll wore an intricate blue dress and matching hat and tiny black leather boots. Madeline thought she was beautiful until she looked at the doll's face. The doll was smiling slightly, and something about that smile made Madeline uncomfortable. She thought... She was silly at first, but the more she looked at the doll, the more uncomfortable she became. After her birthday party, Madeline took her new toys and games and put them away in her room. She propped the new doll on her bed and sat down in a chair to read. The whole time she was reading, she felt odd, like someone was watching her. She looked around the room, and her eyes rested on the doll. Suddenly, she wanted the doll as far away as possible. She leapt up, picked up the doll, ran down the stairs, and put the doll into a cupboard in the kitchen, closing the door. That night, after Madeline went to bed, she heard an eerie giggling downstairs, and footsteps in the kitchen. She listened closely and heard someone climbing the stairs very lightly. One step, and then a few minutes of silence. Then another footfall on the next step, with silence after that. When Madeline looked down the stairs, she saw nothing and went back to bed, thinking she was hearing things. The next night, it happened again. One step, two steps, three steps. Once again, Madeline went to check out the noise. This time, she sprang around the corner to surprise whatever was making the noise. She glimpsed a moment of the blue dress and hat, the doll. But when she blinked, the doll was gone. She convinced herself that she was seeing things. She finally fell asleep 
exhausted after midnight. On the third night, Madeline heard the steps again. One step, two steps, three steps, four steps. By this time, Madeline had convinced herself she was hearing things. She blocked the noises out and was determined to fall asleep. She sang herself a song until she finally drifted off to sleep. Only minutes later, Madeline awoke to a clatter. She sprang out of bed, threw open her door, and found the doll, splayed on the floor, and next to her, a butcher's knife, from that very kitchen cupboard where Madeline hid her. That moment, Madeline took the doll and packed her into the trunk she came in. She put on slippers and a bathrobe and headed into the backyard, where she dug a hole and threw the trunk in. The doll is buried there still, and children say that as they sit under the tree out there, they can hear the sound of the doll's eerie giggle. Oi, well, uh, seems a sensible way of dealing with that situation. Yes, I'm. I'm very surprised that nobody got murdered. I guess. I guess that's a trend. Nobody got murdered in that Hookhand story either, did they? Hey, nope. Uh, well, I guess these are uh, kind of friendly violent stories. Yeah, I, I guess. Hey, well, uh, looks like you got one more there. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Do you want to read this story? It's an amusement park or something? What, what is that? I, I'm, you're the one who knows more about Earth stuff than me. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Look, maybe, maybe you'll figure it out through context clues. Yep, uh, well, okay, let me, let me see. What, what's this one called here? Uh, the ropes trick. Okay. I know a lot of, you know, rope tying knots and stuff. You know, every sailor does. Yes, I, I, I am assuming it doesn't have to do with that, but I, I guess... Maybe it's another sailing thing. It might be appropriate for you. Aye, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll find out then. The ropes trick. A rope really wanted to go to an amusement park. Oh, oh, I gotcha. It's a story about a sentient rope. So it's, is it a mimic? Aye, well, um, I haven't seen no sign of mimics around this place, but maybe, maybe there are mimic ropes here in uh, this uh, world of Earth. We've already established it's pronounced Earth. Well, yeah, but I, I, I saw it written, and uh, I got confused for a second. It, just just continue the story. Right. Um, Rope really wanted to go to an amusement park, okay? Um, he wanted to ride the rides, eat cotton candy, and play the carnival games. He was so excited, and on the day he decided to go... He set out early to be there before the park even opened, so he wouldn't miss any of the fun. When he got there, he stood in line to buy a ticket. The man at the gate took his money, then looked at him and said, I don't think I can sell you a ticket. I have adult tickets and children's tickets, but I don't have any tickets for a rope. I can't let you in. The rope really wanted to go to the park, so he tried again. He stood in line. And when he got to the front and saw the ticket man, he begged. I drove all this way to be here. All I want to do is ride some rides and eat cotton candy. Can't you please let me in? 
But the ticket man said he didn't have any tickets for ropes and turned the rope away. Huh. Well, okay, so I guess it, uh, it is some sort of mimic rope. And uh, they're just as hostile to mimics in this world as they are in ours. I went up here, so... Okay, uh, let's see. Just then, the rope had an idea. He twisted himself up like a pretzel and took a comb and ratted out the hair on top of his head. Then he put on a big jacket and some dark glasses and stood in line again. When he got to the front of the line, the rope once again asked to buy a ticket. The ticket man looked at him for a second and said, Hey, aren't you that rope? The rope replied, I'm afraid not. Um, okay, yes. Go, go on. Oh, no, uh, let me... Oh, see, see how it's spelled? Afraid, F-R-A-Y-E-D, uh, not. Okay, I know, it's a fucking pun. Oi, well, uh, hey, you're the, you're the one who handed it to me. Yes, what the fuck is this doing in a collection of scary stories? It's not even scary. Well, uh, like we said, uh, Earth folks is scared of stupid things. I guess, you know, they're just really scared that, uh, not, you know, uh, a rope is gonna tie itself into a knot and convince you that it's actually a person. Well, I, I suppose that is a rational fear if that is an everyday occurrence here on Earth. Hmm. Yep, um, I... Honestly, these stories are getting kind of boring. Did Should I try to find one more? Well, I, I did say that was the last one. Yes, but it, it doesn't feel like a good ending. Just give me a second. Okay, um... Yes, this, this is a bit of a long one. You might want to sit down. I, well, um, I'm not used to reading this much, to be honest, so I uh, appreciate... Yes, sure, sure, okay. Last one. This one is called... All you need is a bucket of snails. Um, oh, it actually is an author this time. The author is Santiago Delmar. Okay. It all started with a simple schoolyard rhyme. No one knew the original incarnation. Only a fragment of it survived and was circulated amongst our school. A pail of snails lifts the veil to Black Bart the Frail. Black Bart became an amalgam of the boogeyman and the wish-granting genie. Lara was the first one to suggest the rhyme as literal instruction, and then spread it amongst the rest of the schoolchildren. I don't know who added the instruction of salting the snails. I don't know if it was sheer coincidence or implanted in a young mind with sinister intent. It had rained for a week straight the day we brought it home, the first summer rains breaking the month-long dry spell. Sun-baked and water-parched snails had begun to peek out from their shady hiding places at the first sign of moisture and had overtaken our small trailer park. All of us had done our part 
in bringing them in. My little brother Mark and I used old Tupperware. Others used cups and boxes, but we brought them to the same place, a rusty old metal bucket on the outskirts of the nearby forest. Terry had kept watch over the bucket, using a stick to push any snails that had tried to slither out back in. Thomas was the one to bring the can of salt, and Jeremy had been the one to open the can and salt them. I had seen the way snails had ruptured and spilled out in sudden bubbling agony when salted. But even then, I couldn't have foretold the sight of hundreds writhing in panic, and the frothing fluids that rose to the top of the bucket and spilled out in one long, sloshing drool. Lyra gagged. Some of the boys jeered. Mark pressed close to me, and I was entranced by the vileness of it all. Something shifted from within the still-writhing mass, and my stomach lurched at the realization that something had peeked out from the liquid. It was a small digit, but it was wrong, looked both frostbitten and semi-translucent. It felt as if the world was falling away, as if time was slowing to a crawl. The moments between heartbeats stretched out into an unbearable eternity. With a twitch and vivid motion, a diseased hand reached out from the slop, gripped the side of the bucket, and hauled itself up. Another hand followed by the head and shoulders of what might have once been human, or something that had formed itself in the rudimentary shape of a human. Its face was smooth and featureless, only stained, splotchy flesh. Everyone witnessing this otherworldly birth was paralyzed by primal fear and forced to watch as the thing adjusted its hold around the bucket and tried to find leverage to pull itself out. It had managed to free its torso when the bucket tipped over and spilled the creature out, a naked thing the size of a toddler. The irregular patterns of its malformed flesh repeated throughout its entire form. Its head jerked up to face the group, and the skin where its mouth should have been shifted, stretched, and thinned until it tore open, like an amniotic sack, and from within dull white teeth grinned at the group. Hello, little children, it croaked out, almost pained. Black Bart, Jeremy asked. The creature tilted its head and aimed its eyeless glare at Jeremy, and the boy tensed. Black Bart, is that the name you know me by? The silence answered in lieu of any word or movement, and Black Bart settled his lipless grin into something more passive. I collectively held breath, eased out, and some of the others dared to take a step closer. I knew you all have something to ask of me, 
so get on with it and ask. Some may wonder how we could ask for something so wicked. Often some kind of greater moral virtue is attributed to children of a young age, as if innocence only exists as a harmless wonder. But I'm going to tell you a harsh truth. Children are cruel, even in innocence. There was a casualty in our cruelty. They would be diagnosed under a myriad of psychological afflictions had it manifested in adulthood. But we also had our reasons, every one of us. Jeremy's father was an angry drunk and inebriated most days. The bruises faded with time, but the memories didn't. Lara's parents, like countless others, spent most of their time in a drug-fueled stupor and neglected the basic care for their children. Mark and I had a ma that ran out on us and a pa that never wanted us in the first place, and he made sure to let us know. We want you to get rid of anyone over the age of ten, Jeremy said. In the whole town... The world, or just here? Blackbird asked. Just here, Jeremy said. That's easy. Consider it done. When you greet the sun tomorrow, you will be without any of the old folk, Blackbird said, in that same strained, croaking tone. The creature peeled back its lipless mouth to flash one last smile and bounded off into the woods. Through the translucent portions of its body, Something inky squirmed against the prison of its flesh. I gaped at it until Black Bart had disappeared into thick brush. There was excitement in the other kids, but I couldn't help feel like I was teetering on a thin line suspended over a chasm filled with the horrors of the void, and I had just taken the fatal step. It would send me tumbling headfirst into its maw. I went home that day with the first taste of existential anxiety, the type that lingers for days and weeks. The screams rang out at midnight, a deafening cacophony of wails sustained for a few seconds, and then silence. I lay in bed, frozen in fear, unable to will myself to get up and look, and so hours passed before I fell into a sudden and dreamless sleep. I was jolted awake by a knock at the door by an eager Lara. I ran to Pa's room first, but it was as empty as it usually was on workdays. Any delusion that the previous day had been a feverish dream was dispelled the moment I opened the door. Lara was holding baby Mikey. His mother was very protective and would never let Lara play with him, let alone carry him around like this. I stepped out, judged by the sun that it was nearing noon. Old man Norris should be blasting classic rock by now, but the trailer park was strangely devoid of any sound but the passing breeze and occasional child's giggle. They were all gone. I asked. Everyone but us kids. She led me to the others. They were in the midst of systematically looting the trailers of any food or valuables. 
Jeremy was leading the largest group. He looked ridiculous, with this plastic crown on his head and blanket tied around his neck as a makeshift robe. He declared himself king early this morning. His friends and some of the other boys sided with him. The rest of us didn't have much of a choice. His first decree was that all the big kids gather all the food so we can split it. You have to pay for it, of course. Pay? With what money? I asked. Snails, of course. The smaller kids were sent out to find more so we can start a bank. And Black Bart? I think he disappeared. No one has seen him since he went into the woods, but that's why Jeremy wants snails, Lyra answered. A chill crept through my body at the thought of seeing that thing again. I need to find Mark, I said. He was in a dense patch of wood with three other kids his age. They had a few containers with a couple of snails in each. We trekked back to the trailer park where Jeremy had a picnic table piled high with the spoils of his first decree. He said that tonight we would feast in celebration of our first day of freedom. That night was something every kid dreamed of. We gorged ourselves on our savory and simple delights of sweets and sodas and whatever else we desired. After all, what kid hasn't yearned for a world without the authority of adults? The bliss was short-lived, fading out over a few months. But the first month went along smoothly. Snails were kept in terrariums looted from a reptile enthusiast's trailer. We spent our days in a dreamlike haze, moving from one activity to the next, a child's fantasy. No school, no chores, no one to tell us no. There were injuries, of course. Junior burned his hand trying to make a grilled cheese. Cory bruised his leg after falling from a tree, and the list goes on. But there was never any real danger or fear, food, and snails were abundant, and cuts and scrapes faded over the days. For that first month, any doubts I harbored faded to the back of my mind, and I was happy. The first trouble came at the beginning of the next month, when food had dwindled or spoiled. Snails had become a rare sight around the trailer park, and Wood's Edge and a mailman had left a pile of bills at the mailboxes just outside the trailer park. King Jeremy called a group meeting, and it was decided that we would summon Black Bart. The king's stash of snails was gathered, a bucket was filled, and salt was poured in. As I stared into the violently effervescent sledge and waited for Black Bart to emerge, that same cosmic anxiety crept back in, and I wanted nothing more than to run away. Mark pressed in close again and held firm, held me in place, forced me to watch. Blackbart's hand shot out this time, with enough velocity to fling a long, gooey string of slime onto a crowd of screaming children. 
Shrieks died down as Blackbird found purchase, and he hauled himself out in one horrific motion. Seeing him a second time, I could better ascertain his form. His skin was translucent, and all the splotchy black and white variegation came from whatever strange liquid sloshed around inside him. He was like someone had filled a clear balloon with muck. Black Bart stood up and swiveled his head around at the crowd, lipless grin ever-present. Hello again, little children. What's the occasion? It spoke. No one dared move, and after a lingering moment of hesitation, Black Bart gestured for an answer aggressively enough that Jeremy took a step forward and spoke. We ran out of food. We would like some more he said. That can be arranged quite easily, but I won't do this for free. See, I got to eat too, so who will you give me in return? it said, tapping its nailless finger along its teeth. We have some more snails. The snails are nothing more than a medium for my traversal. For a trade to be made, you must give me something more substantial. Last time you traded everyone but yourselves. What will you give me this time? Black Bart spoke. In the moments of silence that passed, each heartbeat came with a thunderous fury, slow and stretched out. When the finger was pointed, it was with a cold and impassionate cruelty known only to children. Nathan's eyes went wild at Jeremy's decision, casting glances at the other children as if asking for them to intervene. When he looked at the savage grin on Black Bart's face, the seven-year-old let out a yelp, the puddle of piss forming around his feet, and sprinted toward the woods. Later, when asked why, Jeremy would only say that he found the boy boring. No hint of malice in his answer. Black Bart got down on all fours, limbs twisting and forming themselves into something more bestial and suited for quadrupedal movement. His teeth lengthened and thinned until he had a mouth full of jagged fangs. He nodded at us before he set off, full sprint in the same direction Nathan had run, a fiendish cackle trailing it. Mark burst out into tears and tried comforting him, as a big sister should but my eyes and attention were deadlocked on Jeremy. I had seen the look of disdain that had crossed his face the second Mark started crying. Lara, still carrying baby Mike, interrupted our bout with a question on everyone's mind. What about the food? Tomorrow, was all Jeremy said. Sure enough, the next day, at the center of our trailer park, there was a mountain of groceries, and there was some excitement. But as our group had shrunk from thirteen to twelve, the dynamic had shifted drastically. Many kids had played along with Jeremy's boy-king act. Now they looked at him in fear, and their act turned to true reverence. Everyone but me, Mark, and Lara... Occasionally I would catch glances from Jeremy, darker and colder than I had ever known, but I tried to hold my glare whenever possible with as much resolution as a nine-year-old could muster.
that day, I started siphoning off my snail supply into a divot in the woods, hid them within a well-placed rock, and would throw in the few snails I could scrounge for trades. At the very least, food was no longer a concern, as every two weeks a new pile of food appeared in the usual spot. As the days passed, we grew dirtier, as the numbers that cared to groom themselves dwindled, and so did those who cared for a world outside this child's fantasy. I had started to miss school, to miss faces outside of this trailer park. I wondered why no adults had come to check in on us yet. Now that with the wisdom of adulthood, I know that we lived in a very economically disparaged area. Any figure of authority that could have intervened before the madness overtook us had likely given up on us long before we stopped going to school. The second month came to a close, and no ritual was held, but a feast was, one late into the night, with lots of whooping and hollering in honor of a king. I set it out and spent the time cleaning Mark and helping Laura care for Mikey. He spent most of his time crying and had grown sickly pale in color. Laura had long run out of baby formula and was feeding him cow's milk. He's just got to get used to it, she would say, but I knew she had grown sick of caring for Mikey. It was nothing like caring for her dollies. One morning... A few days after the feast, while I was out looking for snails, Laura skipped up to me, a crown of dried flowers upon her head. Jeremy asked me to be his queen, she stated, unprompted. He wanted to ask you at first, but he said you're too much of a bitch, she said, then gasped, looking around as if noticing for the first time that no one was there to reprimand her, and she started cycling through the list of curses. Shit, fuck, damn, and on and on. Where's baby Mikey? I interrupted. Oh, well, when I woke up this morning, he wasn't moving or crying, she said sheepishly. What did you do then? Well, I tossed him in the ditch. It's okay, though. Jeremy says the next time we see Black Bart, we can just ask for him to bring Mikey back. And this time, not as whiny. I bolted off, not letting her finish, across the trailer park to the other side of the woods and towards the ditch. I looked in and started dry-heaving at the sight of the bluish, rigid body of little Mikey. Unable to purge anything but bile, I calmed myself and walked back to my trailer, to Mark. He was unable to get anything out of me, and I could only think back to the time when Pa still brought us to church. The pastor had once said that all sins would be alleviated once confessed, but this was too terrible to confess, not to someone like Mark. I lay about in my trailer, catatonic until the afternoon. Jeremy was shouting at the center of our park, and I went out to see what the commotion was about. He was holding up a distinctive envelope with big red letters, opening it up. He read it out loud. It was a notice that a man would be sent to shut off our power by the end of the month if the electric bills weren't paid. 
We have a king and a queen and an evil witch and her henchmen, he said, pointing at me and Mark. But we're missing something else. An evil empire. In thirty days, the adults will send one of their own to shut our power off and send us back to the old ways. I say we declare war and strike before they take us all away. The crowd of children erupted into cheers, and I could only watch as their screams reached a fever pitch. I didn't see who threw the first rock, just felt the ridge of my left eyebrow explode in searing pain. I grabbed Mark and used my back to shield him from the barrage as I ushered us back into our home. A few rocks pelted our door, and the kids chanted, Stone the Witch! But soon enough, their interests shifted elsewhere. I should have been scared, but with the arrival of the electric man at the end of this month, I saw light at the end of the tunnel. The third and final month was sheer madness. The other children further devolved into savagery. They could be heard all hours of the day, screaming as they trained for war. I had to barricade myself in my house and block the windows since the kids had taken to throwing stones at me whenever possible. I had earned the moniker Cassidy the Witch. Mark and I went hungry often enough, and we had subsided off scraps we could steal. The occasional basket of food left at our doorstep, courtesy of Lara. Every other day, though, the food pile was guarded by Terry and Cory, now wielding broom handles with large kitchen knives duct-taped to the end. Mark had grown distraught as the days went on. I miss Pa, he would often say. I could sincerely say the same. Once I had the chance to sneak out late at night, I crept past the trailers with a satchel full of salt and to the edge of the woods. Guided by the light of a full moon, I walked past a group of trees with dozens of fresh cuts and stabs towards the divot I had been hiding my snails in. I was devastated when I found that the majority had died. All they had left was their shells. Picking one up, I noticed the entrance was sealed by a thin film and realized that they had gone into hibernation. Water would rouse them from their slumber. Realizing this, I ran back to my trailer to get a cupful. But by the time I was ready to return, Corey and Terry were out on patrol, and my moment to converse with Black Bart was lost. By the time I had my next chance, I had lost the nerve. I didn't want to see that monstrosity again. I didn't want to feed it another life. The day of the electrician's arrival was close enough that I had laid my hopes with him. It was early morning when the crunch of gravel awoke the trailer park. An unmarked white van had parked just outside our little pocket of madness. The man that walked up was middle-aged and scruffy, wearing nothing but a simple jumpsuit. Sleepy eyes went wide as the sight of nearly a dozen filthy children gathered to impede his path. I flung the doors open and ran out, calling out to the stranger, Mister, we need some help. 
Pain exploded from my side as a rock bounced off my flesh. Another caught my shoulder, and the cries of witch fell upon the lips of the crowd. Hey, what the hell are you kids up to? Where are your parents? the worker interrupted. His eyes locked with mine, and I shook my head. He turned his gaze to the shoddily armed crowd, eyes lingering on the broom handles with duct tape knives. Shaking his head, he murmured something about needing to make a phone call and turned to head toward his car. The crowd was frozen in place. No one was willing to make the first move, and for a moment I thought that this man had brought back some old-world sanity into this realm ruled by children. Jeremy was the one to make the first bounding step, charging forward with his weapon thrust forward with killing intent. I screamed as loud as I could for the worker to run, to turn around, to do anything. The man spun on his heels to face the children, saw the kitchen knife's deadly arc, and moved to dodge, but the end still bit into his side, deep and cut clean through. Fuck! he screamed, and the crowd of kids should have relented, realizing what they had just done. But instead, some barrier deep within their psyches gave way, and the screaming began. They charged and circled and stabbed in all directions. No logic, just fury. Blood rained down on the sun-parched soil. My ears rang with screams, and I couldn't tell whose screams they belonged. Maybe all our collective shrieks fusing into a call of the most primeval of sins. As quickly as it had begun, it ended, and a man lay dead, shredded to ribbons. Blood pooled around him, and the children were painted crimson, eyes darker than anything I had ever known. Jeremy pointed his bloody spear at me and screamed, Kill the witch, and they charged toward me. I turned and ran back inside and slammed the door shut. I rushed to grab Mark, my satchel of salt, and a bottle of water, and ran out the back door. I heard a voice call out, telling the others to come chase after me. Mark was bawling, and my lungs were burning, but the end of the woods was within sight, just a few more yards. Mark's foot caught a stone and sent both of us scrambling to the ground. I sprang back up and tried to haul my little brother up, but the kids had already closed the distance. A thrown spear cut deep into my shoulder, and I fell back down in pain. They circled Mark the same way they did the worker, and were starting to gather around me, thrusting their weapons. I looked up and saw these red, dark-eyed devils, sneering and laughing at the havoc they wrecked. I rolled away, hauled myself up, and ran into the woods as Mark's screams trailed me. I ran until I couldn't any more. My body gave out, and I fell into shrubbery, deep in some shaded corner of the woods. I cried, the tears crawling across my cheeks in a slow and painful procession, and then came the bawling, the hyperventilating kind, where every lungful of air is hard-fought, but that too eventually faded 
into a weak keening. I spent hours hidden away in their foliage, waiting for it all to numb, and when it did, I arose a different person. It was nearing dark. If the kids had tried finding me, they would surely have given up by now. I trekked through the forest with more confidence than I had ever done, so with anything in my short life, I knew what I wanted and how I would get it. I fell to my knees when I reached the divot containing the snails. Water was dumped in, and I made sure to get all of them. I waited a bit for the snails to come back to life, and undid my satchel, letting the salt cascade in. I felt no disgust as they writhed and bubbled and died. Only fearless anticipation at what they would bring. I waited for it to appear, but as the bubbling slowed, I saw no sign of his arrival. I got down closer to the vile pit and looked in. Something shot out with incredible speed and gripped my throat tight. I tried pulling away, but it was so much stronger than me, and before I could even scream, I was pulled into the slop. I shut my eyes and mouth in hopes of preventing any of the liquids from getting in. The darkness I was plunged into felt weightless. No burden of held breath pressured me to try to take a lungful, and my descent down felt endless. Awaken, a voice said, vast and booming. I fought to keep my eyes closed, but I felt the presence of something start seeping. It was all around me, gazing from all angles. If you wish to bargain with me, you must open your eyes. Slowly, I peeled away my eyelids, expecting the slime to rush in and blind me, but it was clear, like I was suspended underwater. Beyond my immediate vicinity, ribbons of darkness encircled me, like a cage made of black hair. Streaks of white strained the mixture in long fractal patterns. Within the white, something opened up, a space different from the black and white, and I squinted to make it out. I screamed when I realized it was eyes, dozens upon dozens within the swirling black and white fluid. I realized then that this amorphous thing must be Black Bart's true form, the thing that had moved within his translucent flesh. And I closed my eyes again to block out the maddening sight. Keep them open, and ask, child, tell me what you desire. I forced myself to look, and said, I want you to take Jeremy and make him pay for the things he's done. I'll sacrifice myself for this. I've had my fill. I do not need more lives. Your payment will be something much more substantial. When the time comes, you'll know. Consider this contract complete. The liquid surged upwards, dragging me with it. We accelerated faster than I had ever experienced, and my head rushed with nausea. We crossed some threshold, and I was freed from the liquid and launched into the open air. I saw the night stars for a moment, 
before I tumbled onto the forest floor, dry and dazed, but unscathed. In front of me, Blackbird had taken a strange serpentine form, dozens of clawed appendages sprouting from its side. He let out a cackle and launched toward the trailer park with dizzying speed. I was on its heels, trailing it all the way, needing to see what he would do. It reached the children before I did. I heard the panicked shrieks, and I ran up to see the carnage. Blackbart towered over the screaming children. Its limbs held a bawling Jeremy. A hooked claw dug deep into each of his limbs and slowly began pulling him apart. I looked away, let my scream join the others, and shut my eyes tight as the sound of Jeremy's agony reached a crescendo and ended with the abrupt squelch of rupture. The sound of raining blood and entrails and the soft thud of a life taken coaxed my eyes open, and there, before me, stood a bewildered crowd, Black Bart nowhere in sight. There was a moment of collective confusion, but as realization set in, their eyes hardened. It was the witch, Lara spat. And soon the others joined, makeshift spears in hand, as they waved them toward me with the promise of violence. I stood my ground, eyes locked on Jeremy's discarded plastic crown, the very one that had begun all this. If this was the end of me, I was ready to make peace. A child, Cory, I think, took a lunging step forward, intent on plunging the blade deep into my chest, but the flashing of lights and the whoop of a siren jolted everyone to look behind them. A police car, of course. The police would be called for a missing utility worker. Two cops stepped out of the vehicle. One with a blinding flashlight took in the scene. He called for backup, while the other, a woman, asked what the hell had happened. It caused it all to come bursting out of me in one horrible, bawling confession. It was me. I brought it here. I let Mark die, and I killed Jeremy. We were all taken away, of course, and repeated my confession to anyone that would listen. I once heard that to confess one's sins was to alleviate yourself of the burden. But in the years since, no relief was found. I think it's because no one listened or believed me. We became wards of the state and were scattered around the country, and it was all chalked up to the trauma of abandonment. All blame fell on our absent parents and theories from mass drug-induced psychosis to religious mania as a way to explain their mass abandonment. I'm in my mid-twenties now, and I don't want to carry this around any more, so I'm hoping someone out there will believe me and take some of the guilt away from me. Reflecting on all that happened, I think that we became a microcosm of sorts, reflecting something deep within us, something that scares me to this day. One final thing sticks with me, the subject of payment. Black Bart never connected, or so I like to think. I don't know what happened to the others after we split up. I like to think that his ritual died with our childhood. But in the same way that it crept in and poisoned us, 
I've retold his tale here. Maybe someone out there will read this and get a bucket of snails and a can of salt. And when Black Bart hauls himself back out into the world, I think my debt will finally be paid. Well then, that's a pretty uh, gruesome tale you found right there. Yes, no, <laughs> it's funny, we've been making fun of these Earth folks, but goddamn, that, that's the kind of thing that we deal with in our world all the time. I, well, I mean, if I ran into something like that, I'd just kick it in the head till it died. Well, I mean, you would try, it sounds like it's another worldly entity. Uh, well, I mean, that's uh, why I like to keep some magic casters around, you know, they can usually find a way to kill these, uh, whatever the fuck that sort of thing is. Yes, well, I mean, you know, I've, I've killed a few in my time, but it's not always that easy. Uh, well, on that note, uh, best be heading out. Um, I'll see you around. Uh, I, I suppose, yes. I mean, our paths don't cross all that often. Bye. And, um, bye, Eugene, and anyone else who happened to be listening to this. Happy, uh, what, what the fuck, Hall Halloween? Was that it? Yes, yes, Halloween. Happy Halloween. Mm -hmm.